0: You're listening to an episode of the C-19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of respective individuals employers nor the official opinions of C19. Welcome to the C19 Podcast. Your hosts are Jonathan Senshin and Bridget Fielder of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In this episode we'll be talking to Mark H., a recent MFA graduate from Columbia University about his 2018 production of William Wells Brown's 1858 play The Escape, or A Leap for Freedom. The Escape is a comic melodrama that Brown himself performed in dramatic monologue on the abolitionist lecture circuit. The play exhibits tropes of the slave narrative, anti-slavery literature, and other plantation fiction, and minstrelsy, as Brown repeats and revises familiar elements of these genres. At its base, the escape follows three main characters, Melinda and Glenn, the young recently married couple who work together to flee enslavement and to get beyond the reach of white men who would separate and violate them, and Cato, a dandy-esque figure whose feigned contentment and slapstick episodes draw on minstrel stereotypes, but who ultimately escapes by wearing his enslaver's suit of clothes. In the end, Melinda, Glenn, and Cato find themselves together on the banks of the Niagara River pursued by kidnappers who had re-enslaved them, preparing to make a leap for freedom. Mark directed William Wells Brown's play for a three-night run in February 2018 at the Lenfest Center for the Arts in New York. We sat down with Mark H. afterward to talk about the play, its production history, his choices as a director, and how contemporary productions stage and engage with the history of racial melodrama. We were particularly interested to bring Mark H's thinking about the play to the C-19 podcast audience, full of listeners who might read or teach the play, but not necessarily be able to see it produced on stage. Now let's hear from Mark and Bridget. First, you're going to hear Mark H reading William Wells Brown's author's preface, which was printed along with the text of Brown's play in 1858. Mark H himself, as director and performer, took the stage at the beginning of each production and read Brown's words as follows.
1: Author's Preface This play was written for my own amusement, and not with the remotest thought that it would ever be seen by the public eye. I read it privately, however, to a circle of my friends, and through them was invited to read it before a literary society. Since then, the drama has been given in various parts of the country, by the earnest solicitation of some in whose judgment I have the greatest confidence, I now present it in a printed form to the public. As I never aspired to be a dramatist, I ask no favor for it, and have little or no solicitude for its fate. If it is not readable, no word of mine can make it so. If it is, to ask favor for it would be needless. The main features in the drama are true. Glenn and Melinda are actual characters and still reside in Canada. Many of the incidents were drawn from my own experience of 18 years at the South. The marriage ceremony, as performed in the second act, is still adhered to in many parts of the southern states, especially in the farming districts. The ignorance of the slave, as seen in the case of Big Sally, is common wherever chattel slavery exists. The difficulties created in the domestic circle by the presence of beautiful slave women, as found in Dr. Gaines's family is well understood by all who have ever visited the valley of the Mississippi. The play no doubt abounds in defects, but as I was born in slavery, and never had a day's schooling in my life, I owe the public no apology for errors, WWB.
2: Thank you so much, Mark. Um, so. For listeners who are unfamiliar with Brown's play, I'm wondering if you could give us a little summary of what this play is about, knowing that 19th century melodrama is (laughs) uh, admittedly very, very difficult to summarize.
1: Yeah, well, what it's about. uh, You know, plot-wise, it's typical sort of you know, a melodrama affair. There's, uh, there's a hero, there's a villain, there's a quote-unquote damsel, I guess, if you want to call M- Melinda that. Or she's totally not that. Uh, there's a battle, you know, a battle between the forces of good and evil. There's a sensational, you know, sensational plot. Um, in fact, you know, the, the plot is, uh, the piece is more plot-driven than sort of character-driven, as tends to be the case with melodrama. I think overall, um, William Wells Brown wrote this play First of all, it was written with functionality in mind. He wrote it uh, as as part of his his uh, as part of as a tool for the anti as, for the abolitionist cause, the anti-slavery cause. So uh, this play was meant to, to present an argument. It was meant to persuade, um, and so it's part critique and and, and of, of of the American system. And um, but ultimately, I think the play is. Uh, it's about, it is about self-realization, um, and self, self-liberation, self-realization, you know, the three main characters that we follow, Glenn, Melinda, and Cato, um, they each have a journey from the beginning of a play and sort of, uh, you know, trying to decide how to be free, when to be free. Um, they have ideas of what kind of lives they want, who they want to be, and they know that their current situation is not that. Um, and over the course of the play, we see them uh, Gain more strength, gain more courage, gain more determination, and ultimately, by the end, uh, you know, liberate themselves.
2: So you read this preface yourself at the beginning of your production. Why was it so important for you to include this piece of paratext as part of your production, and also to insert yourself as the director into um, this role of the author on stage?
0: Yeah.
1: So. Um, I find this preface to be um, fascinating and and William Wells Brown you know he first of all acknowledges his intentions with the piece which was again never to be seen by the public or like it was never meant to be a public thing he says he wrote it for his own amusement Um, I don't know how, how you know how true that is but you may have to sort of accept his word I guess you know that it wasn't his intention that it would have become the thing that it became so I I, I think I I find there's a humility in that an interesting humility um, that he expresses there but also um, you know and the fact that he he doesn't ask for any there's no sort of monetary gain he doesn't ask for any sort of you know uh, remuneration for it or he doesn't really even care what people necessarily do with it he sort of created this work and has put it in the world and um, and so there's that, I love that he acknowledges that um, that the piece is based on true experience, true lived experience, which I think is important for an audience to know. And then also that there's a sort of a defiant quality to the to this preface as well and that he doesn't really care what people think about. I mean, he 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 says if there's flaws, he acknowledges that there are flaws in it, but he also acknowledges that, you know, he was born into a of slavery and no one ever bothered to educate him and um, so he he makes no apologies and I, I just find that so brilliant. <laughs> and I just felt like people needed to know like people just needed to hear these words. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very important for me to always acknowledge the ancestors, always acknowledge, you know, um, and I think that, you know, not only is the, 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 the his preface amazing in his own words, but to also be able to bridge the, the past with the present um, and to be able to have William Wells Brown speak for himself to the to the contemporary audience in his own words, I thought was um, was, was very important to me. I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a, a program note, you know, some just posted in program note for the audience to read before the show or if it was going to be, an audio track that was played somehow before the show. I ultimately decided to be the one to read it live um, because uh, I love the idea of a narrator in a piece. I just, I love the idea of, of, of that or an MC. It was a way to have someone that was not the cast mm-hmm. sort of speak this. But also as the you know the primary interpreter the sort of first even before the cast and anyone else could, you know I had to sit with this piece for so long and so it, it also sort of acknowledges that kind of private relationship I had with William Wells Brown.
2: So here we might highlight the performance history of the play right as yes. this is a groundbreaking performance. Brown himself is not known to have ever produced this thing in full right even though um, as is the. Uh, common in 19th century, people would read these things aloud, and they would be printed and circulated. Uh, but there's only one other known full production of this play, is that right? And that was in 1971 at Emerson College in Boston?
1: Yes, so that that's another amazing thing. So this play, yeah, in, in William Wells Brown's time, uh, it was never, I mean, again, he, he never really wrote it, thinking anyone would see it, first of all. But uh, he ended up uh, taking it around... You know, to various parts of the country and just reading it you know, during, during anti-slavery move, uh, uh, meetings. And um, yeah, so the first ever real production of the play um, was done in 1971 by uh, James Spruill, Jim Spruill, um, who actually was an early mentor of mine uh, when I was a student at Boston University, which I, I blew my mind and came. You know, it was a whole like, moment when I, when I saw that as well in my research. Um, but he's a man I, I admired greatly and was super talented as a teacher and as a, as a, as a theater artist and a scholar. And, yeah, so he, he the first ever production, uh, he did. He directed back in 1971 at Emerson. He actually also revisited the work in 1977, and so there was another production also in Boston. So, yeah, so my production really is the, the I'm the second Director, as far as I've I've been fine. The second ever, you know, director to to produce this play, and third ever in his, I mean, this is a play that's a hundred and fifty years old. This this year is its one hundred fiftieth anniversary of its publication.
2: And in it, well, it's been it hasn't been produced. It's been widely read and anthologized and taught in classes. Yes. How did you come upon this?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, in an, antho- an anthology, kind of, I was reading or revisiting um, a book called A History of African-American Theater um, by uh, Errol er- 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 G. Hill and James V. Hatch. And it's a, it's a really great general history of African-American theater. Um, it's the best that i found so far. Um, and uh, it's a great sort of starting point to branch off into other research. So I had been familiar with that, that work and had read it. And I was revisiting it, a chapter of it, a couple of years ago um, while in MFA at Columbia. And uh, in the second chapter, he, as uh, it's talking about sort of the, uh, the beginnings of a, a sort of conscious and organized African-American theater, you know, uh, com- community, um, he mentions this play. And so, yeah, I decided to finally actually really read it. I hadn't read it before, even though I knew about the play. Um, so I decided to track it down and got a copy and instantly fell in love with it.
2: So this is um, perhaps a little bit ahead of ourselves, and yeah. we'll come back to some of the basic um, you know elements of, of, of this, but I want to keep going with this sure. discussion of your casting and your yes. characterization because I think this was really the key to the success of this production. So, um, first, I, I think one of the most obviously successful elements of your production is your use of an all-black cast to frame a play that necessarily is. Contains but is framed as a resistance to racist violence. There's a lot of racist violence in this play. Um, This could have been done very poorly, I think we all understand. And I'd love to hear you say more about your decision to cast this production with an all black cast, what your concerns were as you approached the play's violent content. And here I think there's also a necessary discussion of your cross gendered casting in scenes of sexual racial violence and the doubling of characters that's also going on in in, in this. So can you talk a little bit more about your casting of this play?
1: Yeah, casting was was always going to be tricky. I think the decision for an all-black cast came pretty early, even before I necessarily knew all the reasons why. It was sort of an instinct. On the one hand, I knew that I was not interested, at least definitely not at this point in my life or career, in... Um,
0: let's in, not put on a minstrel show. Yeah, well, yes, I was not interested in doing that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was also not interested in staging white on black violence. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. Sta- I wasn't interested in sort of, you know, continuing that ritual, having this, you know, playing this ritual out every night or every day in rehearsal. You know, with a group of white performers acting that out on, I just wasn't. I didn't want to do that for some reason. So that was on one hand, it was selfish in that way. I just, I didn't find that. I mean, we've and we've seen that and we know that, and I just don't know. Yeah, I, I, I felt that it would, um, it would make the play even harder to see and hear. Um, And I I think
2: I want to pause for just a second on on this. Characterization as selfish and reframe that right because um, what what this is is an act of Black self care that respects Black audience goers and does not simply prioritize a white racist viewpoint when seeing white on Black violence and and I think that um, to 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 really articulate the this orientation of who we think about experiencing this play and. Uh, you're centering up yourself as uh, a, a, an African American man in the 21st century, um, having to experience this play, as you say, night after night, right? Um, and, uh, and you know, as well as your actors and other audience members, I think it's important to think about those decisions, right? And And in that, that isn't a default for thinking about depictions of anti-black violence. Is telling, mm. right? And so, so that that your decision to prioritize Black perspectives is radical one, mm. right? Um, in the 21st century, Which is, yeah, right? Like, I <laughs> I think is really telling about the ways the this kind of violence is portrayed in normative right. um, media, both both in film and on on the live stage. And I think that's really really important, right? So that so that self-centering I wanna, you know, take away that negative right. connotation, but Appreciate to view that. this as a, a really positive element of, you know, why anyone would who is not a fan of seeing this this kind of violence enacted right. would want to see a play like this yeah. in in this particular historical political moment. Most definitely. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for that.
1: So yeah, so there there was uh there was that instinct at first, but then also I um there was something about the fact that this play is so unknown by so many, and is such, and yet I feel is so important historically, so important, you know, to our heri- our American heritage, but also very much African American heritage. And there was something I, I really, um, I thought it'd be very valuable and meaningful to have a a group of 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 Black Americans and black theater artists to be able to really um, to really dig into this this artifact and you know of our of our heritage um, uh, and to really uh, to be able to have this space uh, maybe even a safer space um, to you know discuss all the issues that are presented all of the big ideas that are in the play all the complications uh, to have a a space where you know we could uh, you know you know a lot of these characters in the play are you know, their they're tongue-in-cheek, you know, William Wells Brown is, is critiquing them and making fun of them, and so to have a space where the, the artists themselves could to, could do that and have these jokes amongst themselves and be safe in that, and um, I don't know, I, you know, I just thought it would be very meaningful to have, a, a, a you know, a group of an all-black cast and, and, and mostly um, the team as well, the, the artistic team as well, um, to be able to really... Uh, enjoy this amongst ourselves a bit. One One other thing I want to talk to you briefly about the decision of having an all black cast. You know, it was the idea too, of William Wells Brown, I became fascinated with this idea of him reading this play aloud <laughs> to a group of people. I mean, did he did he perform all the voices? Like, did he differentiate in that way? Did he like? How did how did that happen? And I doubt it was just a regular sort of like cold, kind of emotionless reading. It must he must have gotten into it somehow. I'm thinking, but the idea that a a black man's voice, or so a black voice, was inhabiting all these characters even from the very beginning was also an interesting sort of moment and not justification but also um, you know it made me fascinated with the idea of again having all black voices performing this play.
2: I want to return to this point about the escapes. Confronting and reworking 19th century blackface minstrelsy and your staging of black cast members uh, in blackface or in what I would argue is a form of critical whiteface is I think an amazing part of this. Um, There are other living playwrights who do similar things like Brendan Jacob Jenkins and Neighbors and An Octoroon uh, comes to mind as, as kind of adapting 19th century plays. And you're doing something different with your engagement in the 19th century play as it appears and thinking about its production as a place so that we can have that kind of revelation of what the radical intervention the play itself is making on this this larger generic landscape. And so I want to get you to say more about one of my favorite things about this production, which is the representation of Cato, uh, which I think is one of the most difficult things to pull off in this. And I think what makes this play really daunting and difficult to teach is Cato's complexity and playing on blackface minstrelsy and all of the kind of worst versions of this, but also doing something very different, and I'd like to hear you talk more about Cato's development or the development of our the audience's understanding of Cato over the course of the play.
1: Okay, so on one hand, uh, I'll come to specifically Cato in just a second, but just to touch on this, um, the idea of, um, of sort of my take on uh, whiteface or blackface or, you know, the kind of masking uh, convention in a way. On one hand, I, I did want to again acknowledge uh, the influence of that particular genre style art form on this piece uh, in my in my production so i I was i was one question i had very early on as i was thinking about the the production the play was i asked myself (laughs) i don't know if it's a weird question but i asked myself what if all black plays were played with all black (laughs) casts you know um how would that force us to like? How would we then deal with portraying other other ethnicities and races? And how you know? Just how, what you know? Would it would it make us more Would we have to come up with creative solutions for that? Or how would we you know? What are the ways we could deal with that? So that's something I had to ask myself again as I you know once I decided to have an all black cast. How would I then? How would I then pull that off? Um, it became very clear to me that I think that I definitely needed some sort of visual marker of racial difference just because you know something like the the very opening image of the play for me was so fascinating in my imagination to see the curtain come up and you see Mrs. Gaines sitting there with a a little white boy visually behind her and, and, and Dr. Gaines coming in and not knowing if you know if if that's their child or who you know who all these people are, I thought that was very necessary and definitely necessary for later on in the moment where you know, Sampi is confused again by one of the visitors to the house, you know, for being their child. You know, I, I thought that was that was um, important. Can you
2: describe these so, visual markers? Just for yes,
1: us? yeah, exactly. So so then I, I had to figure out what those visual markers would be. I, I settled on for various reasons. So once I for one I was inspired by. Um, I, I tried to ask myself what were sort of what features, I guess, have come to represent the um, the epitome or the um, the epitome of whiteness or white beauty standards or whatever it was. Or I don't, you know. Somehow I I came to that, and I was I was thinking of uh, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye um, and that tragic story and and. Um, just the idea of coveting blue eyes as a you know as as um, as a way to sort of blue eyes in that story symbolizing beauty and worth and all that kind of things like that, um, and ultimately you know whiteness as well. Um, so so that influenced me and so I was like okay well maybe they have blue eyes so that's one possibility. Uh, maybe the white characters in the play might have blue eyes as one marker, and then I thought of blondness, blonde hair. I was in a conversation with a f- friend of mine, and I don't know, just uh, the idea of blondness and as something aspirational again came into the, the picture, um, and so I started thinking of blondness again, and then I, I went back to this idea, this masking, this idea of masking, and I sort of thought about uh, what contemporary sort of versions of that are. You know, instead of just like literally literal masks, you know, makeup is actually a form that, actually, of course, was used back in 19th like, century in blackface, minstrelsy, and other ways like that. But also, um, makeup in this current moment is is, is super. Uh, uh, there's been an explosion of makeup tutorials and like all of a sudden contouring is a huge thing and like you know everyone's learning you know it's become a big part of sort of like Instagram culture everything like that and makeup so so I, I was like well it's clearly an art form that is like you know has been around in this in our culture for a long time and has been explored in many different ways and I'm, I've always been it's very complicated when it comes to theater you know blackface and things like that but I wanted to play with makeup and see what that might be. So. I had this idea of also sort of, a, so I had blue eyes, I had blonde hair, and I had this idea of sort of a hyper contouring sort of to making making faces even more angular and more sort of uh, aquiline or, you know. And it, so those were the sort of three visual markers that I um, wanted to play around with using um, to distinguish between the, the, the white characters in the play and um, black characters, especially since you're having black characters play, but to, you know, so those became the, the, the ones. Um, due to budgetary issues or time things and things like that you know not all of those were realized and definitely not as sort of as richly as I imagined it I wanted it to I know I'd like to go sort of back and really play with that even to even more extremes. but but yeah that was the idea
2: yeah so yeah. Uh, so interestingly so what we don't see then is a kind of literal white face but what we do see and that is I think pretty clear is blonde wigs uh, used throughout right and so this blondness as a marker of whiteness that is unstated but then becomes apparent over you know the course of the very beginning of the play as we kind of work out you know who these characters are and what's going on with them then i think becomes a really interesting kind of theorization of brown's own marking of whiteness in this play and the I think also the this this also plays with the the acting plays up with this melodrama, right? right? And so um so whiteness itself is caricatured in the ways that we understand race to be caricatured in, in, in melodrama, but that often gets masked. And so I think there's this kind of misconception that we're to take all of these characters, you know, completely seriously, except for Cato, mm-hmm. who is ridiculous when, in actuality, Brown writes a number of fairly ridiculous characters alongside the love story that I think we are meant to take, kind of straightforward. And the slaveholders and other pro-slavery characters are some of the most ridiculous in Brown's play. And I think that kind of confluence of both visual marking and playing on the uses of melodrama here really kind of makes that clear for, you know, even a familiar reader of the play who, you know, hasn't had the chance to kind of see how this is, this is played out. And I think that cast alongside a character like Cato really helps us to see what Cato is and isn't doing. And so in this, Cato isn't exceptional in his racial caricature even, but is kind of doing one amongst many, except one of the things that we learn over the course of the play is that, of course, his performance is intentional exactly. to some extent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cato. again, Cato is... is. It's strange. Like, I, 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 I'm so fascinated with this character and so in love with this character that I even sometimes... I like, get emotional sometimes thinking about, like... Because I, it just blows my mind. Um, I just feel he's a character ahead of his time, you know. Um, and Brown wrote, and just a really amazing, amazing character. But, yeah, so so Cato. yeah, he... I mean we see him the first time we see him we see him performing you know for for Dr. Gaines we see him uh, wanting to please please his master and you know putting on the grin and and, and and doing that whole you know dance routine and yet it's quickly it's quickly shattered and that image you know once once uh, Dr. Gaines leaves leaves the room we we clearly see that that Cato um, um, has has strong feelings against his situation, has strong feelings against Dr. Gaines, and has strong feelings against the institution of slavery, uh, and has plans to to to, to, to has plans for uh, for for better than you know for better for more, and uh, yeah, so you know, I, I didn't physically put Cato in in a mask or in blackface or anything like that, but I it, it felt like uh, I mean it was definitely not necessary, and I feel it like the performance is the mask, and, and and again, you know, we all, again, our own everyday lives, we're all putting on various kinds of masks, so I think, you know, William Wells Brown really does a great job of, uh, of showing, even th- through his writing, just uh, the, the mask, the, the difference in in, um, in mask versus unmasked Kato.
2: Now here is where I think mm-hmm. you really help to illustrate um, some of the way that Brown is a bit ahead of his time, and... Cato reads, in many ways, like a uh, kind of later century plantation anti-nostalgia, like we would see somebody like Charles Chestnut writing, right? So somebody, he, he, he seems like he's out of the passing of Grandison <laughs> and not out of mid-century melodrama. Right. And the interesting way that you do this, I think, is by trusting Brown's intervention and play with genre. So you don't shy away from melodrama in the scenes with Cato. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, most definitely. You know, like I—it's—it's strange. Like we have such a—I feel like there is a, a a strong reaction to to this idea of melodrama and uh, reluctance to address it or to to deal with it anymore more. And yet, you know, it was so. Uh, Important, you know, like it was such an important art. Form. I mean, it was the you know worldwide. It was like it was you know, in, in the 19th century that was the primary you know genre, uh, and I think that like not only did that inform sort of all of American, it's informed a, a lot of American culture, especially entertainment culture since then. But like you know, it still presents itself in you know, in, in a lot of our TV shows and a lot of you know current sort of uh, you know you know other art forms that we have nowadays. So it's still very relevant. Melodrama was supposed to stir strong emotion in the audience. Um, it was, uh, you know, which would have been important in you know, this particular piece as Brown was presenting it to a group of people he was trying to persuade, or, you know, um, in, in many ways um, against the institution of slavery and, you know, appealing to the, the emotions, pathos would have been, you know, very important. But. Uh, I, you know there's also just like the fun the, the, I think the melodrama parts are the, the most are the fun the really fun parts I think as a director and, and artist that I that I was able to have with the piece because you know I have that's where the adventure story comes in you know this is it's a it's a slave narrative in dramatic form um, as it being semi autobiographical and based on um, William Wells Brown's own experience um, and so there's a lot of horror in this world and you know and that's built in. But a lot of this, like, uh, but it's also it can be enjoyed as an adventure story, as, a, as in the story of, of of people escaping from from horrible circumstances and going on a a, a, a road trip in many ways, an adventure trip, and, and the perils that come along with that, and then a final there's a final showdown between good and evil and a big epic battle and there's a lot of excitement that I think uh, melodrama brings, and I wanted to I didn't wanna I wanted to embrace that in this in this piece. I really wanted to. Um, you know that was the you know there's 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 these fight scenes written into it and like what does a fight scene between Mrs. Gaines and 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 Melinda look like you know like it's in the play it's just described you know Mrs. Gaines pulls out a, a vial of poison and a knife and she and then and she she slowly approaches Melinda and then it just says you know Melinda sweeps her off, cap, comb, and curls. That's all it says. So then I had to be like, well, okay, that's great. You know, Melinda wins in the end. But like, what is that? Like, how would that interaction happen? Like, how well, does that show yeah. up?" You,
2: and you turn this into a literal wig snatching. <laughs> a literal
1: wig snatching, right? Yes. And
2: I think that's a, um, a really high moment for kind of audience satis- general audience yes. satisfaction in the play. Um, yeah. I think you're getting at something really important in um, kind of popular disparagement of melodrama, uh, characterization as archaic, as lowbrow, as over the top, in your recognition that melodrama is quite common and operates in many other genres, like adventure, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, other kinds of slapstick humor, as quite a contemporary and living you know, element of of popular theater and exactly. not just this kind of archaic, right. um, you know, holdover or something. And I think that I think the this play shows a lot of the ways that uh, these popular disparagements of melodrama are actually not grounded in, in reality of like the history of theater. Yeah, more broadly, <laughs> most
1: definitely. And you know, this idea of like lowbrow, you know, like. Shakespeare is, Shakespeare is an amazing. He did an amazing balancing act, which is why his plays are so still so loved and read and important and relevant. You know, all of that because he, he was he his plays speak to speak to all audience. I mean, they speak to the low. Uh, You know, like it's I I even like those terms because it implies sort of degree. But like you know, he he had he had stuff something for everybody in his plays. He had the, the the heightened language. Uh, which also Brown uses as he's referencing um, William Shakespeare and the characters of Glenn and Melinda and their their flowery their speeches and stuff. Um, but he also had you know the he had violence and he had moments of you know that that would appeal to um, to all sorts of people. So I think that you know um, again Brown also does that and I really wanted to honor that. And um, another th- another way that. Uh, Melodrama influenced my production is that um, you know the, the idea of melodrama itself. It, even breaking down the word melodrama it comes from melos, um, which which uh, was Greek for uh, well honey but song, um, uh, and then the drama of course, but like that. But melodrama is also a key element of melodramas was music, mm-hmm. um, incidental music. So it had music that would accompany the action and, and help to um, help to the audience to feel as well help help to get them and rouse emotion in them as well and so for me as I was thinking about this piece I knew that you know again based on my my own sort of research into early african-american theater and uh, there were there was a use of live instrumentation or a live small band on stage in many in many early productions and so I wanted to you know as I'm trying it's part of my larger mission Is to um, is to not only sort of you know scavenge and excavate those uh, elements, foundational elements of of a black theater tradition, but also in my own way, you know, create my own African American theater that is very African American, but also, you know, very Mark Age.
2: We could talk a little bit about Cato's songs as well, and um, if you could say something about the actor who portrays Cato and what. Your aim was with getting this together.
1: So Titus Van Hook um, was the amazing actor that played Cato. He was a first-year uh, actor in the MFA program at Columbia University, and um, you know, again, Cato, um, Cato's journey. Cato, again, he's a survivor. He he respectability is super important to him, and he has big dreams for himself. He has he doesn't necessarily know it. Exactly how he'll get there, or but he knows that he wants to be more. He knows that he wants to be a doctor, and then something else comes along. He's like, no, I want to be that as well. I want to be the, and he and he finds any means he can to achieve it. You know, he's the trickster character uh, in this play, and so he's also playing on that 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 African, African American, you know, American tradition, you know, figure as well. He uh, super smart, super agile in his thinking and in his physicality. He, um, you know, his. While Glenn and Melinda, you know, they literally have fight physically for their freedom to escape. Cato sneaks out, and he disguises himself in his master's clothing and sneaks out and finds his freedom in that way, which is was just fascinating. He, you know, I, I, anyway. So, so, so Cato, you know, his he's a supreme challenge for any actor just because of the his emotional depth and the complexity of him. You know that, that William Wells Brown wrote. But he's super fun as well, and I, I think that um, you know I needed an actor who, who could be, um, who could give me all of that. Who could also be charming. You know, again, it's a, it's such a difficult character, and it could could be very could cause a lot of strong reaction in a lot of people. I needed a, 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 an actor who could also come off as. Um, while we don't necessarily like him in the beginning because he's kind of an obstacle to Glenn and Melinda and he's, you know, we, we have reactions to sort of his, the, the trope of, of this character but um, ultimately we, we we like him you know, we have to like him um, and I, what I find it amazing this is one of the most amazing moments in this play of so many, is Glenn and Melinda, like they don't like Cato at the beginning, again he, he's, a, he's an obstacle for them in their love and, and, and all that, but the uh, through fate, the three of them end up meeting, you know, reuniting at the house of the Quakers. Um, they've all gone on their separate journeys, but they they, they reunite there. And that's the first time Glenn and Melinda have seen Cato since the plantations, you know. Um, and... I think obviously there's an initial hesitation because you know he was the ma- the masses you know right hand man. So is he is is has he has has Dr. Gaines come up? Is he is he around as well? But then after that initial I think moment of suspicion, they welcome Cato immediately They welcome him you know as one of their own. And Cato says, "I'm one of you now. You know, I'm I'm here too." And I think it's an amazing moment that they embrace him, and all the all the other stuff kind of falls away. That they you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's one of them plays, um, real moments of radical abolitionism, right? Where, you know, Cato's kind of opportunistic. Right. He's, you know, a bit of a dandy. He's self serving. Um, it's unclear. But, you know, he um, he's, he's looking out for himself yes. at the beginning, and that seems to be his main pro- problem. Right. Um, but he is just as deserving of freedom as any of these other people. Yes. And that's what these characters recognize yes. right, in that, um, in you know, they're, they're, they're kind of joining, right? That, like, anybody getting out of this yes. is a good thing, ultimately. Um,
1: and in know. this new world, in this new world that they're heading towards, you know, he's a part of that. Uh, you know, all of, all of these, you know, Glenn Melinda and Cato gets to be there, too. And one of the moments that I, you know, I had a moment at the end, it was subtle and may not be recognizable, but, like, I wanted um, Cato to, <laughs> and as, as part of his costume, I, I wanted him to have white gloves. I just wanted him to to have white gloves to, to again, reference minstrelsy where, you know, they, they that was a, an element. But also, you know, at the end to, to have a symbolic moment of him removing those gloves and dropping. So before, you know, after the whole fight scene, at the very end, before he jumps into um the, the 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 fairy he has a moment where he removes those gloves and casts them down and leaves them on the shore and and jumps in to the to fairy to join the others so there was you know there was some meaning behind all of that as well but yeah I think I think it's uh, I think it's beautiful that um, you know we get to still while we may have different you know tactics for for achieving self liberation or self realization and all that um, Ultimately, you know, the embracing of community and all that, and, and and all all facets of us in this new land, I think, is, is, is a beautiful sort of message that I, that I saw and and wanted to, hope to hope to convey.
2: Um, can you tell us what is next for you?
1: Yes, um, so what's next for me? I am, so I graduated, uh, which I'm so, you know, happy. Happy. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for that. <laughs> that was a lot of work. Um, but I am actually going to be, um, I'm going to be heading to, uh, to Chicago. Um, I got a, uh, I accepted a fellowship and an artistic apprenticeship with Steppenwolf Theatre. So, I'll be with them for their entire 2018 2019 season, working directly with uh, Anna Shapiro, the artistic director, and the whole artistic team. And, you know, I'll be in rehearsal rooms with them and planning the season and doing administrative work and, you know, some casting and all sorts of stuff. So, I'm really excited to be able to learn from, you know, one of the quintessential American theaters uh, and a model um, that I really, you know, as an ensemble theater, you know, it's a model that I really respect. So, it'll be great to, you know, as I'm thinking about my own company. Uh, my own future plans you know, to be able to learn from them. It's gonna be amazing. Um, I'm also uh, collaborating right now with Bill T. Jones um, Choreographer, director, legend, all of that um, he uh, um, We're devising a new piece um, That is going to be I don't know how much I can or should say but it's a it's a it's a new uh, new piece That's going to be going on at the Park Avenue Armory uh, in 2020 um, and it's uh, it was uh, inspired by um uh, the character of Pip in Moby Dick. Um, so yeah again it's you know yeah so <laughs> and it's going to be amazing and I, I'm, I'm having the most amazing time. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I'm working as his dramaturg on that. so I get to do you know so much research and do all you know and so I've, I've developed an amazing profound new appreciation and love and obsession with Moby Dick itself. but uh, this character of Pip is another another fascinating character this time from the you know the the imagination of, a, of a, the imagination of a white author but yeah so so yeah so, it
2: arrives at the moments when this becomes a play that we're reading yeah, yeah when, right yes in so bizarre yeah novelian
1: form exactly so um so yeah so those are the two main things that i'm working on right now and i'm excited about both of those and um yeah I'm, i mean i can't wait for the, the journey ahead and what else is going to come my way so we'll, we'll see but but yeah definitely keep a, a lookout it
2: was lovely to to chat with you thank you so much thank
1: you this is great
0: thank you for listening to the c19 podcast enjoyed this episode have thoughts use the hashtag c19 podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com have an idea for an episode check out our cfp on the c19 website for more details on submitting a proposal